You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading episode 29 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. As we've talked about before, for three months after his election, up until the time he started his inaugural journey to Washington, Abraham Lincoln issued no public statements and made no formal addresses. But as we've also talked about before, that doesn't mean Lincoln was passively sitting at home in Springfield twiddling his thumbs and killing time. On the contrary, he was at work behind the scenes, actively engaged in shaping the Republican response to the growing secession crisis. One of Abraham Lincoln's most important tasks during the period between his election and inauguration was the construction of his cabinet. And to that responsibility, he devoted a considerable amount of time and energy between November and March. There's an often repeated story that in November 1860, on the night of his election victory, once he was finally home, an exhausted Abraham Lincoln was unable to sleep, so he stayed up pondering whom he should name to his cabinet. According to the story, which was encouraged by Lincoln himself, he wrote down eight names on a slip of paper that night. He put himself at the top of that list, and then the other seven names, and amazingly, it was almost the same as the cabinet he finally appointed. Today, that little card can still be found in the Abraham Lincoln Papers at the Library of Congress. But according to Lincoln scholar Harold Holzer, there's just one problem with that story. It's not true. Abraham Lincoln may have encouraged that story to make it seem that the construction of his cabinet was a neat and tidy, quickly accomplished process, and that the men finally selected were his first and only choices for those key spots. But the reality is that after the election, for weeks, and in some instances for months, Lincoln worked to finalize the composition of his cabinet and to assemble the team of rivals alongside which he would confront secession and civil war. But what of that celebrated slip of paper in the Library of Congress? Well, according to Holzer, careful examination of the names reveals that most of the undated list appears to be in handwriting other than Lincoln's. And it's well known that not all of the names on the list were even in consideration right after the election. For instance, Gideon Wells' name appears on the list, and yet Wells was certainly not Lincoln's first and only choice for Secretary of the Navy. In fact, Wells, supported by Vice President-elect Hannibal Hamlin, had to campaign quite hard for quite a while after the election for the post he ultimately won. So the story that inspired Lincoln sat down the very night of his election and made up his cabinet is most likely a piece of fiction. 
The truth is, Abraham Lincoln calmly took his time to finalize his cabinet, refusing to announce most of his appointments until the very afternoon he became president on March 4, 1861. Since the president-elect took great care and gave much time to the building of his cabinet, and since the men he selected for those key positions would be called upon to offer constructive leadership as the new administration struggled to cope with the dissolution of the Union and the outbreak of civil war, we're going to give this episode over to taking a look at how Lincoln constructed his cabinet. After his victory at the polls, Abraham Lincoln continued to use the governor's corner room on the second floor of the Illinois State House as an office, just as he had during the election campaign. John G. Nicolay, Lincoln's personal secretary, now became the president-elect's one-man transition team. Lincoln kept much the same schedule as he had before, working on correspondence with Nicolay first thing in the morning, then receiving visitors in the office from 10 until 12. At noon, he walked home for lunch with Mary and the boys. Lincoln returned to work with Nicolay in the early afternoon and then opened the door once again to visitors from 3 to 5.30. A young newspaper man posted to Springfield to cover Lincoln for the New York Herald said, quote, He sits or stands among his guests, throwing out hearty Western welcomes, asking and answering questions, joking, endeavoring to make matters every way comfortable to all present, end quote. If Abraham Lincoln's schedule and behavior seemed to change little after Election Day, there were some changes that were readily apparent to even the most casual observer. While friends, politicians, reporters, and curious visitors had always flowed through the open door of his temporary office in the State House, now there were also a steady stream of favor-seekers that wanted something from Lincoln, and most often what they wanted was an interview with the president-elect and a government job. By mid-November, Lincoln was greeting up to 160 such visitors each day. Each morning, they assembled outside the governor's room, lining up from the upstairs hallway down the statehouse staircase and sometimes spilling out the front door of the building. The same newspaper reporter Tracy mentioned a minute ago, a fellow named Henry Villard, also noted how Lincoln used humor and storytelling to graciously fend off the request for favors that his multitude of visitors made of him. Quote, his never-failing stories helped many times to heal wounded feelings and mitigate disappointments. End quote. Villard also observed, quote, None of his hearers enjoyed the wit, and wit was an unfailing ingredient, of his stories half as much as he did himself. A high-pitched laughter lighted up his otherwise melancholy countenance with thorough merriment. His body shook all over with gleeful emotion, and when he felt particularly good about his performance, he followed his habit of drawing his knees with his arms around them up to his very face, end quote. And I don't know about you guys, but I've often thought, you know what, I wouldn't give to, just for five minutes, be in the room when Abraham Lincoln was telling a story, and then watch as he laughed at his own joke as his whole body shook with laughter, and as laughing, he hugged his knees up to his face. I mean, we've all seen the photos of the somber, unsmiling Lincoln, but, you know, man, what I wouldn't give to see Abraham Lincoln's face lit up with laughter. That would be neat. Maybe when someone invents a time machine. Hmm. 
But anyway, besides the horde of favor seekers making demands on the president-elect's valuable time, another difference that an observer would have noted was in Lincoln's appearance, because for the first time in his life, Abraham Lincoln was growing a beard. Just before the election in October, he had received a letter from an 11-year-old girl from a tiny village in western New York State, urging him to cultivate his whiskers. Grace Bedell wrote to Lincoln, quote, I have got four brothers, and part of them will vote for you anyway, and if you let your whiskers grow, I will try to get the rest of them to vote for you. You would look a great deal better for your face is so thin. All the ladies like whiskers, and they would tease their husbands to vote for you, and then you would be president. End quote. The result transformed Lincoln, but whether for good or ill was a topic of some debate at the time. One Illinois newspaper, after reporting on the change to Old Abe's appearance, then concluded, quote, Still, there is no disguising the fact he is homely. End quote. <laughs> That's classic. And um, just as a footnote, in February 1861, on Abraham Lincoln's journey from Illinois to his inauguration in Washington, D.C., his train pulled into the tiny village of Westfield in New York. And as Lincoln addressed the crowd that had assembled to see him, he told the story of Grace's letter and said that if she were there in the crowd, then he'd like to meet her. Well, Grace was indeed there, and so Lincoln descended onto the platform, and as Grace herself remembered the scene 70 years later, the president-elect, quote, lifted a somewhat frightened little girl into his arms and kissed her, and he passed his hands over his newly started beard, remarking, you see, I let these whiskers grow for you, Grace. Then he shook me cordially by the hand and was gone. End quote. But before that momentous rail journey in February, Abraham Lincoln made another trip, this one to Chicago. On November 21, 1860, Lincoln left Springfield for the first time in more than six months and took the train to Chicago for a three-day meeting with Vice President-elect Hannibal Hamlin and several other movers and shakers in the newly ascendant Republican Party. No doubt Lincoln was eager for a chance to escape the crush of visitors and his taxing schedule in Springfield, but the trip to Chicago would not exactly be a vacation. Lincoln had important business to take care of in the Windy City. The president-elect was looking forward to meeting with Hamlin so that he could discuss potential cabinet appointments with him. As Ronald White tells it in his biography of Lincoln, quote, In Chicago, Lincoln explained to Hamlin that he wanted to reach out to his rivals, especially Seward, Bates, and Chase. He wanted to tap the best talent available for the difficult road ahead. He was most concerned about getting Seward on board as Secretary of State. He wondered if Seward, rejected by the convention, might in turn reject Lincoln's invitation. He entrusted Senator Hamlin, wise to the ways of Washington politics, to handle negotiations with Seward. End quote. Seward, Bates, and Chase had been Abraham Lincoln's three chief rivals for the Republican nomination and were household names in Republican circles. William Henry Seward had been a celebrated senator from New York for more than a decade and governor of the Empire State for two terms before he went to Washington. Ohio's Salmon P. Chase had also been both senator and governor and had played a central role in the formation of the Republican Party. And then the venerable Edward Bates was a widely respected elder statesman from Missouri, a former congressman whose opinion on matters of national importance was still sought after. 
All three men, knowing they were better educated, more experienced, and more qualified than Lincoln, were stunned when he received the Republican nomination, and no one was more shocked than William Henry Seward. In his book, Days of Defiance, Mari Klein describes Seward in this way, quote, Everything about Seward contradicted. His appearance was at once striking and unassuming. His thin, stooped body shuffled awkwardly about in clothes innocent of style. Beneath silvery hair that was always disheveled lay shaggy brows, a beaked nose, protruding ears, secretive eyes that seemed to be relishing a private joke, and a sallow complexion creased with lines. His look reminded Henry Adams of a wise macaw, and his whiskey voice, made hoarse from a long-time addiction to cigars, tossed out words with seeming carelessness, yet was also capable of rolling out rhetoric that, in Adams' choice phrase, would inspire a cow with statesmanship, end quote. In most people's minds, Seward had been the clear frontrunner for the Republican nomination. That Abraham Lincoln, the log cabin-born dark horse, had beat him out had clearly been a crushing blow to Seward. So the question now was, would he agree to serve in Lincoln's cabinet? Tradition at the time actually dictated that the most prominent remaining member of the victorious political party should be offered the State Department, even if he had battled the winner for the nomination. Both Seward and his closest political advisor, an Albany newspaper editor named Thurlow Weed, were well aware of this precedent, and so while Seward publicly remained ambivalent about the Plum Post, behind the scenes, through Weed, he campaigned for it. Not until a month after Election Day on December 8th did Lincoln dispatch two personal notes to Senator Seward via Hamlin, who by that time was back in Washington serving out his final weeks in the Senate. Hamlin handed Seward Lincoln's letters on December 14th. The first note was the expected formal invitation to join the cabinet. Lincoln wrote, quote, With your permission, I shall, at the proper time, nominate you to the Senate for confirmation as Secretary of State. End quote. The second letter made clear that the president-elect meant the appointment as more than a courtesy. Lincoln wrote, quote, I now offer you the place in the hope that you will accept it, and with the belief that your position in the public eye, your integrity, ability, learning, and great experience all combine to render it an appointment preeminently fit to be made, end quote. But if Lincoln thought the careful and wily Seward would leap at the invitation, he was mistaken. Seward made Lincoln wait more than two weeks before he deigned to accept the appointment. It seems William Seward knew he was still the more widely known and respected figure in both party and nation. And even at this point, he was envisioning a Lincoln cabinet in which he, rather than the inexperienced and bumbling president, would be the dominant influence. Seward was a keen political tactician, and so when he received Lincoln's offer of the State Department, he didn't accept at once but told the president-elect he needed to think about it. This seems to have been a first step toward exerting a subtle control over Lincoln. But that Seward would accept the key cabinet post was never really in doubt, because if he wanted to remain a major player, exercising substantial influence in the first-ever Republican administration, then he would have to become a part of that administration. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Aside from Seward and the State Department, Lincoln, from the outset, was mindful that the process of selecting potential cabinet appointees needed to take into account geography, election debts, and finally, political pedigree. As for geography, Lincoln knew he could go a long way toward calming skittish border states by naming one or more men from that region. He also seriously considered selecting a Southerner, but in the end, he rejected this idea as being too potentially politically embarrassing. And as for political debts, whether or not his lieutenants had cut deals at the Republican convention, Lincoln did believe he had political debts to repay to certain regions whose delegates had favored him rather than Seward from the beginning, and also to those sections of the country that joined his bandwagon after that first ballot at the convention. And in considering political pedigree, Lincoln understood the Republicans were still not a unified, coherent organization, but rather a collection of rival interest groups. And so, especially with the national train wreck his administration would be facing from its very first day, Lincoln knew he needed to maintain peace between these factions so that he could count on his party's support as he tried to maneuver the Union through the gravest crisis America had ever faced. Abraham Lincoln knew that Edward Bates would satisfy two of the aforementioned criteria, being from the border state of Missouri and also being one of Lincoln's major rivals for the nomination. Bates traveled north and visited Lincoln in Springfield on December 15th. Lincoln invited Bates to join the cabinet as attorney general. With Bates' acceptance in hand, Lincoln turned his attention to his third rival, Salmon Chase. Even before Chase came to Springfield in early January, Lincoln had already determined he would offer the Ohioan a key spot, either Treasury or war. When Chase left Springfield, he had indicated his willingness to serve in the cabinet, but he wasn't exactly clear as to what spot he had been offered. If Lincoln was beating around the bush as far as Chase's spot in the administration, it was due to a growing controversy over the position Pennsylvania ought to be given in the cabinet. As far as political pedigree, once Seward was on board, then besides the two other Republican rivals already mentioned, Bates and Chase, Lincoln knew there was a fourth member of the select group who, like those big three, had once seemed far more likely than he himself to win the party's nomination, and that was Pennsylvania's cagey and corrupt Senator Simon Cameron. 
Not only was Cameron a major figure in the Republican Party, but Pennsylvania's voters had played a key role in giving Lincoln a victory on Election Day. So it seemed Pennsylvania ought to be rewarded with a cabinet post. Yet Lincoln had been repeatedly warned about Cameron's dishonesty and his reputation for shady dealings. On December 30th, Simon Cameron arrived in Springfield, where Lincoln graciously received him. After talking with Cameron, Lincoln sent him back east, with Cameron believing he would be appointed to Treasury or War. But immediately thereafter, Lincoln uncharacteristically changed his mind and withdrew his offer. Cameron was offended at Lincoln's backpedaling, and he simply ignored Lincoln's retraction. As it turned out, it wasn't until the very eve of his inauguration that Lincoln, after arriving in Washington and soliciting the views of different Republican senators regarding a Cameron cabinet appointment, only then did Lincoln decide to appoint a Pennsylvanian after all as Secretary of War. Ultimately, though, Lincoln's concerns over Cameron were realized when, within months, the Secretary of War was mired in scandal, and the President would eventually name him Minister to Russia in order to ease him out of the War Department. So Seward would head up the State Department, Chase would end up getting Treasury, Cameron was to be Secretary of War, and Bates was slotted in at Attorney General. Thus were the rivals incorporated into the administration. And then we can run through the other spots in the cabinet rather quickly. Montgomery Blair, from the border state of Maryland, served as Postmaster General. Blair had actually argued Dred Scott's case before the Supreme Court. Gideon Wells of Connecticut ably served Lincoln as Secretary of the Navy. Wells, a former newspaper editor, had been a strong Lincoln supporter and seemed a logical choice to fill New England's spot in the cabinet. And then Caleb Smith of Indiana was appointed Secretary of the Interior. Smith's appointment was a reward for Indiana's key support of Lincoln's nomination at the Republican Convention. When Seward's associate Thurlow Weed pointed out to the president-elect that he was giving former Democrats a majority of one in his cabinet and asked if that was a wise idea, Lincoln smiled and replied, quote, But why do you assume that we are giving that section of our party a majority of the cabinet? You seem to forget that I expect to be there, and counting me as one, you see how nicely the cabinet would be balanced and ballasted, end quote. Abraham Lincoln could give that confident reply to Weed because the president-elect deliberately built his cabinet, knowing that his official advisors would be more important to him for the political strength they brought to the very first Republican administration than for the advice they would give him. The Republican Party in 1860 was still a fragile political coalition, and Lincoln knew his only hope of successfully leading his party and the Union through the growing national crisis was to ensure that all the other major Republican leaders were working for his administration rather than against it. And so Abraham Lincoln filled the top spots in his cabinet, not with his closest allies, but with his greatest rivals for power within the Republican Party. As Doris Kearns Goodwin pointed out, Lincoln, quote, stunned the political world by putting all three of his rivals into his cabinet. It was a seemingly dangerous act since it risked building up a potential opponent and ensured that he would be seen by many as a mere figurehead. His opponents were certain that he had failed this first test of leadership. In fact, it was a subtle perception about what he needed and a deep emotional strength that lay behind Lincoln's move. As his secretary, John Nicolay, later wrote, Lincoln's first decision was one of great courage and self-reliance. 
a less confident man might have surrounded himself with personal supporters who would never question his authority. Later, Lincoln was asked why he had chosen his chief rivals for his official family, knowing each of them was still smarting from his loss. Lincoln's answer was simple and shrewd. We need the strongest men of the party in the cabinet. We needed to hold our own people together. I had looked the party over and concluded that these were the very strongest men. Then I had no right to deprive the country of their service. End quote. We'll obviously talk a lot more on the podcast uh, about the role of the men who comprised Lincoln's cabinet as we look um, at different times at the Union war effort. But for now, we'll start to wrap up this episode by pointing out that Doris Kearns Goodwin has astutely observed that Abraham Lincoln could fill his cabinet with the strongest men of the Republican Party because he was supremely confident that he was the strongest of them all. And Tracy and I will simply add that, thankfully for Lincoln and for America, he was right. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and it's probably no surprise that our recommendation for this episode is Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. We're guessing that quite a few of you listening to the podcast have already read this excellent book, but if by chance you haven't, then we really can't recommend it strongly enough. This is how Doris Kearns Goodwin herself describes Team of Rivals, quote, This, then, is the story of Lincoln's political genius revealed through his extraordinary array of personal qualities that enabled him to form friendships with men who had previously opposed him, to repair injured feelings that, left untended, might have escalated into permanent hostility, to assume responsibility for the failures of subordinates, to share credit with ease, and to learn from mistakes. He possessed an acute understanding of the sources of power inherent in the presidency, an unparalleled ability to keep his governing coalition intact, a tough-minded appreciation of the need to protect his presidential prerogatives, and a masterful sense of timing. His success in dealing with the strong egos of the men in his cabinet suggests that in the hands of a truly great politician, the qualities we generally associate with decency and morality, kindness, sensitivity, compassion, honesty, and empathy, can also be impressive political resources. End quote. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then as we close this episode, we have some good news and some bad news for y'all. The good news is that we're taking a break from our day jobs and going on vacation. Yay! Yay. And so you can probably guess the bad news. There won't be a new episode next week. As Tracy said, we're taking a bit of a holiday, and as part of that time away, we're going to spend a few days at Gettysburg, which we're really looking forward to, but that does mean you'll have to wait two weeks for the next episode, so sorry. But to try and make it up to you, we'll take some photos while we're at Gettysburg and then put them up on the website and on Facebook after we get back home. Definitely. Oh, and if you want to see what four books we're packing in our bags to take to Gettysburg with us... You can head over to the website where we'll put up a post highlighting those special books that will be jetting across the country with us. So that's at civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. All right. um, So with that, I think that's it for this show. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 
1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope y'all will join us again next time when we'll get back to the escalating crisis revolving around Fort Sumter. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.